So to put it a little more clearly, that means that God either causes or allows anything that happens in our life. God is not taken by surprise when those things happen. God is either the cause of our suffering or he is sovereignly allowed every suffering in our life. Now, this is difficult because some see this truth as completely against God's loving character. We've all heard this type of pushback against God's sovereignty, right? If God loves me, he would never allow something like this to happen in my life. Right? We could all probably say we've heard that or we've heard at least a variation of that. Or some people would say it a little differently. I can't believe in a God who is supposed to be loving and would allow these things to happen to society and culture and all that. However, that of course doesn't change the truth of the scripture, right? That God is indeed sovereign over all. And here's the incredible thing about linking God's sovereignty to suffering, okay? Here's the way it looks. Let's just use the illustration of a family whose infant son has died. Whether that was sudden infant death syndrome or whatever it is, let's use this illustration maybe to help us Understand. So this family wakes up one morning. They go to get their infant son out of bed, and he's just unresponsive. You know, he's, he's died in his sleep, no cause. So that family, obviously, is immediately going to be asking, what is going on? Why did this happen? What, all of those things, right? And so we think about God's sovereignty. Look at how this connects. I understand that it sounds cruel, to say that God wills my infant son's death, that he's ordained that, right? He's either caused it or allowed it. So because of that, but believing that my son died against God's will is far worse. So on one side we have this happened, God was sovereign over it, he causes or allows all things. I can accept that truth. I can hold on tightly to that truth. Or the other option is to say, God had nothing to do with this. It was out of God's hands. That's really where we're at, right? Now, here's why grasping on to this truth about God's sovereignty is so important. Because if I believe that God was hands off, here are the implications of that. That would mean that God is not in control, that evil can ultimately win, and my future is uncertain. Yet, I mean, if this happened outside of God's control, then here's the bad news for us. Evil can win. Bad things could overcome this God who is not in control of bad things. So this is the pull that we feel, right? On one hand, we say, man, God is loving. How could we believe that he's sovereignly controlling 
these things. And yet at the same time, if we don't believe that, this family's infant son died randomly and without any purpose. It was just chance that that happened. So the fact that he has ordained all of our suffering implies this. Our suffering is worth something. Our suffering has a purpose. And listen, that means that our suffering is totally meaningful. That it means something. That God forbid any of us would lose an infant son. Right? But if that were to happen, that we could grasp onto the fact that this child did not die a meaningless death. That God is going to do something through his death or her death, through our reaction, through his sovereign plan, through that to accomplish something that the scripture says is unseen. Remember Paul, look at the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. So, truth number one, God ordains. He is sovereignly in control. He causes or allows. And because of that, it has purpose. It has meaning. Now, here's number two. Truth number two. We serve a purposeful God. Right? Here's the greatness about God. He doesn't do things for no reason. Right? When He created us, He created us for a specific purpose. When God acts in our lives, He does things for a specific purpose. So as we think about this a little bit deeper, a little bit more personal now, because now we're not talking about this God who is up somewhere floating around unconcerned. We're talking about a God who is intimately connected with moment of suffering in our lives. Every moment of question, every moment of anxiety, every moment of everything that we do, God is right there purposefully doing things that would lead to His glory and His namesake and our good. That's why God works. So God is this big, sovereign, in-control God And he comes close to speak to us tenderly, to work in our lives personally, and to make us different, to finish what he begins. So in other words, our significant sufferings do not happen by mistake. No, there is no random chance. There is no purposeless misery. Get this, within this framework of thinking, there is no such thing as a tragedy. Because did you know the technical definition of tragedy is this? Tragedy means ruin, destruction, or downfall that ends with no level of redemption. So if we think God is in control and is sovereign, then tragedy can never happen in our lives because God is always doing things that lead to good, 
that lead to redemption, if you will. So in that sense, there is no such thing as tragedy, even though our lives may contain a great deal of heartache. It may contain a great deal of misery at times. We can believe, we can hope for, believe in this firm truth that God is a God of purpose and a God of restoration. Contrasting the tragedy on one hand with the comedy. Now I know for us we like to think that comedy is like a movie that makes us laugh, right? But the technical term comedy, if you even go back to ancient literature, a comedy was just a story that ended with a happy, if you will, ending. A story that ended well. It ended well for the character that was struggling in the story. So then if you will, listen to this. Our suffering is actually comedy in our life, not tragedy. And this is the incredible thing about who God is and the incredible thing about Christianity. Like how many people in our world today, if they heard what I just said, would think I was like a lunatic. That our suffering is comedy. There is no way that those things can go together. Unless you believe in a God who is purposeful, purposefully sovereign, and he is working all of these things together in our life to produce something that in the end is classified as good. There's no way I could obviously lead a session on suffering without talking about the book of Revelation. I mean, that's what Paul was alluding to in 2 Corinthians when he said, look to the things that are eternal, not the things that are temporary. And he says, Revelation 21.4, there are no more tears. There's no more sickness. Look, there is coming a day when we will not suffer. There is coming a day when those sin issues that from the garden have caused these miserable moments in our life will no more matter, will no more have any desired effect. And so we will be glorified and have this living of eternity that is described as joyful. Here is one of the craziest, to me, stories in all the Bible. John chapter 11, Jesus' friend was named Lazarus, right? What happened to Lazarus while Jesus was walking the earth? He died. The shortest verse in the Bible is what? Okay, so Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend. I think the story goes Lazarus' mother was there, I believe. And it says that he weeps with her. Now, Jesus knows, I'm about to raise this guy from the dead. Why is Jesus weeping? Jesus goes and he's, he knows, in just a few minutes, I'm going to say Lazarus come forth and he's coming out of there alive. Not just spiritually alive, physically alive. But instead, Jesus goes and he weeps, right? Jesus 
was fully man after all. So at this moment, we see that emotion. We see coming alongside this mother in her time of suffering, crying alongside her, and then making this incredible, good, awesome miracle happen afterwards. And I think this is sort of how Jesus works in our suffering. Jesus is coming to us in the, in the midst of that to comfort us in those moments of weakness. I think here's one of the ways that maybe we failed to understand God's purposeful, sovereign um, rule over suffering is that sometimes we could leave a session like this thinking, okay, God's sovereign. This is all great. He's purposeful. So what that means is that I just need to suck it up. I'm from Kentucky. So, like, get over it because he's sovereign. Like, study your Bible. Act like that's not happening. And just get your head down and keep going. Look, that is not what the Bible teaches about suffering. The Bible teaches that in our suffering, there are tears, there is sorrow, there is pain, and we don't have to deny those things just because we believe God is sovereign over it. But what we have to recognize is that it's in the midst of that pain that we experience the closeness of our God, the intimacy of our God. Romans chapter 8 says it like this, we come to God and we cry out, Abba, Father. That is the way, that should be our response in suffering. And really that terminology, Abba, Father, is like a child, like my little two-year-old girl would fall down, scuff her knee, and she's going to come and say, arms up, probably crying, right? Daddy. And she says, hold you instead of hold me, right? Daddy, hold you, right? That's it. When in the midst of our suffering, the Bible is not teaching us this stoic denial of our emotion. It's not saying get over it, like act like everything's good. It's simply saying we understand this truth about God's sovereignty, and yet in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the suffering, we come to God and we say, hold you. I need you, God. I need you. you. We see that over and over in the book of Psalms, right? David in the midst of some of that caused by sin, but crying out to God, God, don't forsake me. God, hear my prayers. Don't forget about me. Don't turn your ear from me because I'm in this desperate moment of need. And so this is how we walk through these suffering moments. It's incredible. Let's look in Psalm 28 because I do want us to see just sort of one picture of how this played out in David's life. Psalm 28. Here's an illustration of how we can come to God in the midst of hurt. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands, 
toward your most holy sanctuary. Here's God, or here's David, entrusting his entire soul to the sovereign God. He's not stoic. He's not sedated. Right? He is fully aware of his emotion, and he's crying out to God. And then look in verse 3. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Give them according to their work and according to the evil of their deed. Give to them according to the work of their reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of His hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord. There it is, Job, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. David says, blessed be the Lord, because you have heard my voice, the voice of my pleas for mercy. You are my strength and my shield, my heart tr- in him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song, I give thanks to him. This is an incredible picture about how we can respond in the midst of suffering. Okay, one quote on this. Some of you may know the name Joni Ada. She uh, lives on the West Coast, sort of founded this whole uh, ministry as it relates to uh, children and adults that might have special needs and those kinds of things and really has become a, a strong voice in the evangelical world about how God uses suffering because she herself is wheelchair-bound. And Listen to this quote I found from her. I thought she said it well. Every sorrow that we taste will one day prove to be the best possible thing that could have happened to us. We will thank God endlessly in heaven for the trials that he has sent us. Think about that. At one day we will realize that these sorrows, these miserable moments were actually the best thing possible for us. Because that's what God does. God always does the best thing possible for us and for his glory. We can trust in that. And so, man, if we were to see our suffering in that light, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I can't see exactly, but here's what I can trust in. You are doing the best possible thing, always. And some of the most difficult moments of my personal life and of my ministry life are sitting down with couples who experienced what my wife and I did when she was about 10 weeks pregnant before we had our first child. I don't know if you all know this, the doctors say about one in three pregnancies end. Why? What are you doing? I've had couples sit before me. Why is God, what is God doing? And this is a difficult question personally and in ministry because what we have to say is, I don't know what God's doing. We do not know what God is trying to accomplish. But here's what we do know. Do know. God does everything for a reason. 
He is very, very purposeful. And we can hold on to that. We can hold on. We serve a good God. I find comfort in that. When my wife and I were walking through that, when I talk to other families who've dealt with that, here's what I know. God doesn't make mistakes. And whatever the purpose is for why He's doing what He's doing, here's the truth. He is a good God. He will not ever do something that is bad. It may seem bad for us. It may seem like, God, this is the thing I could ever comprehend. I mean, we have a national holiday coming up on Sunday where thousands of people died at one moment. Why would God do that? Why would God at least allow that to happen? I don't know. Here's what I know. He's purposeful and he's good. He's not capable of making a bad decision because he's God. He always does things that are right. And this is the really incredible thing. Uh, Another just illustration in John chapter 9, there were some of Jesus' disciples And they found this man that was blind. You all remember the story probably. And his disciples said, okay, Jesus, let's ask you a question. Who sinned that caused this man to be blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Jesus said something that probably blowed his disciples away by his response. Here's what he said. He was born so that the work of God may be displayed in him. That's John 9.3. That's an incredible story about the goodness and the purposeful intent of God. That this man, Jesus said, was born blind, not because he had sinned, although he had. Not because his parents had sinned, although they had. He was born blind so that God may work in his life and show his glory and his goodness. That man may have gone on to be healed. That man may have lived an entire life where he never saw the light of day. But no matter which outcome happened, here's what we know, because Jesus said it, God was seen through his blindness. The goodness, the glory of God. And so just as God had purpose to the blind man's suffering, God has shown me over and over in my life that there's my suffering too. Let me just get personal with you all for a moment. Some of you all have heard this story. If you have, please be patient with me. When I was a senior in college, I was playing soccer. I was a goalie. And this guy was dribbling all down the field. He got out. And I went out as any goalie, good goalie would do, right? And I jumped on the ball, right? Just as this guy to kick it away. It was kind of we both jumped at the same time. I don't think there was anything malicious on his part. But when he slid in to kick it away from me, Uh, He kneed me right in the the throat. So it was one of those, I don't know if you've ever played sports or 
It's one of those things where I'd played sports a lot, so I'd experienced this before, where you get the wind just knocked out of you. Right, so I stand up. I'm, you know, I'm thinking any moment I'm going to catch my breath. Well, without going into graphic detail, things start coming up, and that kind of, it was obvious, like, I can't breathe, and I'm not going to catch my breath. So I lay down on the field. They call 911. Uh, there, were, there was a paramedic crew close by. They come. They said, sir, we don't have time for any kind of pain medicine. We have to open you an airway right now. So I get out this little kit. They put it right here on my throat, and they punch a hole, right? They give me what they call a tracheotomy right there on the But it was instant relief. Now they bypassed all of this, and I'm breathing, so obviously that was a relief for me. They took me, I was in Jackson, Tennessee. They took me to the hospital there. I said, sir, there's nothing we can do for you here. You're going to get on a helicopter. You're going to wake up at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, so sure enough, I woke up on the helicopter. We're landing. We go to the ER. Of course, it's a lots of people. It's really crazy. And then the surgeon comes in. He's actually a surgeon that works with people who have throat cancer. And so he says, you've been in a terrible accident. Uh, number one, you're, you're blessed to be alive. He said, most people suffocate before they get here. So he said, count it good that that's happened. He says, here's what we're going to do. You're going to we're going to put you to sleep, and we're going to do surgery on you. So we have three priorities. Number one, that you can breathe on your own. Number two, that you can eat food again. And number three, that you'll be able to speak again. So he said, what happened was when that guy needs you, he crushed pretty much everything in your throat. Your windpipe, the muscles that you use to get food down into your stomach, they're no good. So we don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, we're going to try our best. So we go into surgery, wake up. I look like Frankenstein because uh, they've had to put this huge stent inside of my throat. And they put actually buttons on the outside of my throat here that held that stent in place. And they said, here's the deal. We don't know if this is going to work. Like you had nerve damage, like your vocal cords and all of that were just destroyed. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to eight weeks and we're going to wait and see what happens. So for eight weeks, I couldn't speak to another person. Well, I did have like a little whiteboard. So I'd like to write on there, I've got to go to the bathroom. That was the only way I could communicate. I had a tube going down my knows that like older folks, if they can't eat, like they drink the insure. Like that's what they were pushing down this tube because I couldn't eat. God had already called me to ministry. I'm thinking, God, what is going on? Maybe at this point I still had the trach. I was breathing. Maybe I'll never breathe except out of this tube. Maybe I'll never eat food again. And since it's third on the list, I'm probably never going to speak again. God, what are you doing? Here's the incredible thing. If you can't talk to another person for eight weeks, you talk to God a lot, right? You get really, really 
devoted in your prayer life when he's the only one who can hear you. So through that experience, I would never want to go through that again. Ever. It was awful. I had to go back a couple times, a couple different procedures. But now I talk like I talk. And here's the incredible thing. People ask me a lot, are you sick? Like, are you a drill sergeant? You know, get all kind of questions. Are you a coach? You scream at your kids a lot. That is all a reminder to me of the goodness of God. Of my dependency upon God. Because God, I look back, I say, God taught me more in those eight weeks than He taught me the rest of my Christian life combined. God is with us in in our suffering. He's good to us. He's gracious to us. That's our last truth this morning is this. God's glory is manifested through our suffering. You all have heard the name Charles Spurgeon before. What you may not know is that Charles Spurgeon died when he was 57 years old. He died of a couple different diseases, but here's what he said about this. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by His hand, and that my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and of their quantity. Do you hear what Spurgeon said? He said, I know the God who's filling up this cup of suffering. I know the God who measured out this cup of suffering. And I know the God who weighed it and quantified it and said, this is exactly what you need in your life and what I'm going to do for my glory to the T. And it's really incredible that God weighs out every minute of our suffering. Not a hair falls, the Scripture says, from our heads apart from His will in our lives. While we've experienced brokenheartedness, we can know that God ultimately uses our broken hearts for our good and for His glory. Here's the the truth this morning. We will never know all that God is doing in our trials, in our moments of suffering. But we can see that He will refine our character. He will draw us closer to Him. And He will enable us to minister to others through these afflictions. Our greatest joy is that our suffering has purpose. My suffering does. Your suffering does as well. To God be the glory for that. Let's close with one Uh, other passage of Scripture together. Let's turn to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus is very close to going to the cross. It's actually in John 13 that we have the picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in the upper room and all that. So this just happens right before that. I want to point out to you, um, starting in verse 23, 
John 12, 23. Obviously, this is Jesus talking about what he was about to do, but gives us a huge perspective on suffering in our lives. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I mean, Jesus was about to experience the full weight of suffering. He was about to suffer for our sins. He was about to suffer the full magnitude of the wrath of God. And yet he said this, in order for fruit to come, death is required. In order for that wheat to produce more wheat, it has to go into the ground. It has to die. And what comes from that is life. And so, man, if we could, as Job said, though you slay me, I'll praise you. Here's why. Because it's in our suffering. It's in our death in that sense that God produces fruit. That God produces the good fruit in our lives and the good fruit of drawing attention to His glory. So what is our response? Here it is. Application number one. We have to realize this. We may be suffering as a form of God's discipline in our life. So let's not overlook that. When we start to experience this trying time, this suffering time, our first response should be, as David cried out, search me, O God, and try me. Know my heart. In other words, that's to say, God, if this is coming as a result of your discipline in my life for sin, I want to see that. I want to know that sin so I can repent, I can confess, I can turn from that sin in repentance to you. So, application number one, don't overlook God's discipline. Application number two, you may be suffering irregardless of a specific personal sin. Ask God, God, if this is discipline, show me. If you're trying to point out some sin in my life, expose that. If not, if it's more like a Job suffering, then here's God's word for us. Trust in a purposeful, good, gracious God. Walk in obedience. Go to Him with that Abba Father, emotion is okay. God is not saying, dry up your tears and get over it. He's saying, in the midst of your suffering, come on, I'm here. I'm here to receive you and to hold you just as Jesus wept with Lazarus' mother before he brought good things out of it. If we do that, it'll cause growth. Man, it's a difficult subject. But it's a subject that... For us, we can at this point, we can embrace suffering because it's totally meaningful. Hey, a couple books because some of you like to read. This is the classic sort of book on suffering. 
This is one of those guys, D.A. Carson. If you like theology, you should buy every book he writes and read it because it's all good. But this is a good one, How Long, O Lord. Uh, the, the subtitle is Reflections on Suffering and Evil. He talks a lot about Job and that kind of thing. This is a good one. D.A. Carson. D as in dog. A as in alpha. Carson. Okay, here's another good one. This is a more recent one. Tim Keller, a really good book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. So this really gets at that whole idea of God being Father and not saying dry up your tears and get over it, but being, but saying this is the point, at least partially, of our suffering so that if we walk with God in a more deeper way. And so this is a good one. Tim Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Quick, uh, I have never read this book, but this comes recommended by Dr. Wright. So he's read it. If it's heretical, then blame him, because I've not read it. But it's called Suffering in the Goodness of God. Suffering in the Goodness of God. This is more of a, it's a lots of different authors, but if you just go to Amazon and type Suffering in the Goodness of God, you'll find this one. And then this one is really special because this is a movie. This book was actually made into a movie that's coming out this Tuesday for one night only. And I looked it up. I think it's at Fossil Creek Theater and the Cinemark in Grapevine. But I read this book about a month ago, and this is a really, really incredible story of a missionary who was in Somalia when things were no good, I, things are still not good there, but experienced some incredible persecution, suffering, all of that, even to his family, and yet walked with the Lord through it all. So if you can, go see the movie Tuesday night. I, I promise it'll be a good thing. If not, get this book. It's a really good story of a missionary who, it's called The Insanity of God, by Nick Ripken. Last name, R-I-P-K-E-N. The insanity of God. In other words, is God insane for doing these things? Of course not, but it looks like that, right? Hey, thank y'all so much for being here this morning. Let me say a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. I'll leave these up here, so if you want to get more specific titles or whatever, uh, you can. Sure. It doesn't hurt to talk. No, ma'am. Well, after eight weeks, they had to do a couple more procedures. It was actually just a very faint whisper. And then over the course of a few months, uh, it's gotten stronger and stronger. But this is as good as it's going to get. But then at some point, they can put Botox in one of the vocal cords to make them bigger, and then it won't be so raspy, but I'm good. Yes, ma'am, Ms. Carmen. Okay, let's pray together. I'll go let, let y'all go eat. Lord God, you are a God who works at a level that our human minds, like how you've created us, you've created us so that we can't understand it. And we believe that's purposeful. We believe the purpose in that is so that we'll trust you. 
So God, help us to trust you. Help us to um, take courage, as your word says. Do not lose heart. You encourage your disciples, Jesus did, just before he was about to leave, and he said, um, do not lose heart. Because we know that you're a God of restoration. You're a God who takes what seems like bad things, and they're not bad at all in your economy. They're exactly what you've uh, designed for us. And so because of that, it's in this that we don't pray for suffering to come in. We don't want, in that sense, to suffer. But we do understand that it's through suffering, through your purposeful intent, that you are glorified. And we are on a life trajectory of seeking after your glory. So we would all exclaim this morning that if you're you um, get more glory through suffering in our lives, may we suffer with courage. May we suffer with um, trust and belief in you, knowing that you're orchestrating all of these things to accomplish your good, perfect will. It's in your name we pray. Amen.